Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us, and it it just occurred to me that at the time that I am recording this podcast, it is April 1st, 2021. April 1st. And that's it's very interesting because of what today's topic is going to be. It's going to be about God's use of deception in the Bible. <laughs> and uh, that's what April Fool's Day is all about. It's about deceiving people for the sake of pulling pranks on them. So just just an interesting factoid there. Um, although at the time at the time that you're listening to this podcast, it's gonna it's gonna be April second, unless you're a patron. And even as a patron, you probably won't hear it until tomorrow. And by the way, tomorrow's Good Friday. It is uh, Holy Week. Happy Easter, everyone! And I want to remind you that uh, if you want to witness to an atheist or an agnostic or a Muslim or, or some non-Christian friend, one thing you can do for them, and it also helps me with views, <laughs> one thing but one thing you could do for them, and I think this is really good, is to take them to CerebralFaith.net, go to the YouTube video section, and scroll down until you see the the category, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And there I have a 12-part video series unpacking the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And it's 12 parts. The reason it's so long is because I wanted to go really, really in-depth. I wanted to make it sort of like an online course, uh, to be frank. I wanted it to just be really in-depth, get really... I mean, it's not as in-depth as I as I could be, but it's, it's as in-depth as... One can go in 12 videos. Um, I talk about the, my methodology, and then I talk about the, his, the, the historical evidence for the five minimal facts, you know, the, and most of the minimal facts have one whole video dedicated to them. So I give like 10 different historical arguments for the crucifixion of Jesus, 10 different arguments for the empty tomb, uh, several different um, arguments for the historicity of the postmortem appearances, um, I talk, I refute naturalistic theories that try to explain the empty tomb and the appearances to the disciples Paul and James. Um, I respond to the a prior probability argument, which Bart Ehrman uses in his debates on the resurrection. And so just go check that out. Go check that out. Show it to them. Um, and... You know, see if they find the evidence persuasive, and see if they want to make a decision for Christ. Uh, that's something good that you could do on uh, this Holy Week. But let's get into today's subject. Today's subject is God and deception. Uh, now, what, what I mean, you know, God, God's use of deception, what do I mean by that? I have several tabs open. I'm trying to find my way to get to the relevant passages um, so, second, a lot of people would be, 
surprised that God actually has deceived some people in the Old Testament. And that bothers some people, and I can understand why. For example, Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, A faith and knowledge on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God does not lie. It says right there, Titus chapter 1 verse 2. Um, in the English Standard Version it says, in, the, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Uh, the Berean Study Bible says, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Uh, the NIV, New International Version, says, in the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. But, you know, so the meaning sort of changes depending on, it sort of changes depending on the translation. NIV would have you believe that it's just something God does not do, but it does, it says nothing about whether or not God can or cannot do it in a modal sense. Uh, the e, the ESV also just never lies. He just doesn't, it's just something he doesn't do. But the Berean Study Bible and a few others, um, they make it into a modal thing. God cannot lie. He is incapable of it. But Titus 1-2, no matter how you read it, it, it gets... You get the impression that, yeah, this is just something that God is incapable of doing. He just doesn't do it. And there's a verse in Numbers as well, that uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? I mean, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. God does not lie. Um, and by the way, this for uh, Unitarians out there, this does not refute the, doc the deity of Christ. Numbers 23, 19, when Moses was saying this, he said this long before, Je long before God became a man. Uh, it was true. God was not human. At, in any sense, no person of the Trinity was a human being when this was originally written down. But even then, I mean, it, God is sometimes used to just refer to the Father. Sometimes it's used to refer to the entire Godhead. Maybe it's just maybe Moses is just referring to the Father. But the fact I, I think the best uh, the best response to the Unitarians, I, I, I hate, I'm sorry to get off on this rabbit trail, but the best re response to the Unitarians is just, hey, the Incarnation hadn't happened yet. God was not a man. Yeah, that's true. It, it was true back then. But he does not lie. That That's what I, that's the important point for today, is Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That's the New International Version. I originally uh, read from the King James Version because that's what I had up on the Bible Hub tab here. But, and you read those verses and you think, oh, well, that's all nice and dandy. God doesn't lie, you know, because he's good and he's a God of truth. He, you know, Jesus, the John 14, 12. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, who is God, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So, what's the problem? Because 
the problem comes in 2 Kings 7. God made, in 2 Kings 7, God made the Aramean army supernaturally here an incoming enemy, and they fled. Um, God did this. It was his intention to save the Samaritans. But God was basically deceiving the Aramean army by doing this, by creating this, this sound of an army, a non-existent army approaching, so that they would leave. There was no actual army approaching them. Um, the, um, the, the passage says, 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 to 7, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say, We'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there, for the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. Quote, and end quote. God clearly used deception there to, to, in order to get the Aramean army to flee. Moreover, 1 Kings chapter 22, this is uh, for those of you who have listened to my... De- my, the, po- the episodes of this podcast where I talk about divine counsel stuff, it will be uh, pretty familiar. First Kings 22, um, it, God has decided that it's time for King Ahaz, uh, King Ahab to die. King Ahab was a very corrupt king. He just was an all-around bad guy. And... He wa- he and the king of Jehoshaphat, uh, he and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were debating whether or not they should go up against Ramoth Gilead. And Je- and Jehoshaphat, um, he asks for he asks King Ahab to get the prophets and to ask them, "Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain?" Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say such a thing, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and with all prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenah, had made icon horns and declared, This is... Oh, iron horns, and declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. 
Attack Greymoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, the other prophets, without exception, are predicting ex success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah says, As surely as this is the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, with all the multitudes of heaven sitting around him, on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means? the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. End quote. Quote and end quote. That's 1 Kings chapter 22 verses 7 to 23. Now, God is not actually doing the one uh, deceiving here. It is a member of the divine council. You have this divine council scene. They're all talk. God says, King Ahab is just a dirty, dirty, rotten fellow. He needs to die. How is it going to come to pass? You know, this is what God does with his divine council. They participate in decision making. And there's a whole bunch of suggestions. Evidently, none of them would be successful. God knew having middle knowledge that none of them would succeed if carried out. But the last one who comes forward says, I will entice him and I will do it by being a, de a deceiving, a lying spirit in the mouths of all Ahab's prophets. And God says, that'll work. Go ahead and do that. So God is not, he does, he's not doing the de deceiving directly, but he does put his stamp of approval on someone who will. How do we how do we reconcile these biblical passages with passages like Numbers uh, twenty three thirty three I forgot the reference already and Titus one two that says God cannot lie God never lies. Well, I think I think Old Testament scholar Dr. Michael S. Heiser has some good material on this. Um. And these two are not the only times that God uses deceptions to defeat evil and achieve a good end. Um, Heiser says that even the opaque nature of the messianic prophecies was deliberate to keep the, fall, the fallen sons of God from knowing that Jesus' crucifixion was part of the plan to defeat them and redeem fallen humanity. Um, you know, the that's why everybody had such... Messianic expectations that was totally, you know, for the most part, unlike what Jesus did. They just did not expect a dying and rising Messiah. 
And it's only in retrospect that you read passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and you're like, hey, this sounds a lot like what happened to Jesus. But prior to Jesus being crucified, people would read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, and either kind of like the... the the um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, that guy that Philip was was witnessing to in the book of Acts, he was reading from Isaiah, and he's like, I have no idea who this is about. Uh, I don't know if the prophet's talking about himself or someone else. They either wouldn't know what to make of it, how to interpret it, or they would think it was Israel or, you know, just or, or maybe a good prophet that would come into the future. They wouldn't have interpreted it as messianic prior to its fulfillment. Um... Dr. Heiser, in his uh, book, The Unseen Realm, and in several other places of his writing, he says, look, the, me the Messianic prophecies, they are deliberately cryptic. You've got, to, you've got to put the pieces together. And sometimes it's impossible to put the pieces together unless you're looking at it in hindsight. Remember, the, remember Jesus talking to the disciples on the road to Aramaeus in Luke 24? Um, the text says Jesus had to open their eyes to understand the scriptures. He said, hey, didn't, all, didn't Moses and the prophets talk about this stuff? And even after he said that, they were still like, I don't think so. <laughs> that, that is, that's an act of deception in, in, a, in a way, isn't it? I think so. Now, on the Naked Bible blog, Michael Heiser writes this in his blog post titled, Lying and Deception. It's a blog post titled Lying and Deception, posted by Dr. Michael S. Heiser on March 26, 2010. Quote, I define a lie as a, deliberate, as a deliberate utterance of a falsehood, something contrary to reality, with specific intent to deceive or conceal the truth. The focus is what is uttered. I think deception is different when what is done is withholding information. Nothing need be said, or what is said may be the truth, but it would be the partial truth. So I distinguish between lying and withholding information. I see no reason why withholding information is a violation of the ninth command. That command has a context. The old, by two or three witnesses, the truth shall be established idea. Thou shalt not bear a false witness against thy neighbor refers immediately to a legal situation in Israel and more broadly to any intent to harm one's neighbor by uttering a falsehood, end quote. In the blog post just quoted, Dr. Heiser goes on to list several things that the command to not lie wouldn't apply to, from extremely serious situations like an abusive father to uh, an abusive father asking his son where his mother is so he can beat her, and the son knows that, that his mother is hiding under the bed, uh, lying to the abusive father, and Nazis asking if you're hiding Jews, uh, to more benign situations, like responding truthfully to a significant other when she asks if the dress she's wearing makes her look fat. Heiser says that the command to not lie was not given in order to make tact a sin, which is what I, I would say God did in 2 Kings 7, or to allow evil to prolif proliferate, which is what would be the case if God hadn't put that army soundtrack on. Heiser goes on to write, quote, 
The ninth command was not given so evil could progress. It was given to stop evil. It was not given to force us to hurt people's feelings or crush their spirit either. Withholding information is virtuous in these instances for reasons that should be obvious in context, end quote. Heiser then said that while God doesn't lie, he can certainly deceive. I recommend reading the blog post in its entirety. I'll, I'll leave a link to the article in the show notes. Yeah, I, I'll leave, I'll leave a, a link to the article in the show notes, and you can read the entire thing uh, when you get done listening to this. God can use deceit to thwart the evil purposes of humans or fallen angels who would otherwise destroy his people or thwart the plan of salvation if they were allowed to see the whole truth. I think if Jesus were asked by Nazis if he were hiding Jews, I mean, well, <laughs> this is this is not the this is not a perfect analogy. This is not a perfect illustration to put Jesus in because Jesus is a Jew. So when I I whenever I talk about this, I have to say the the Nazi was far sighted. He couldn't see very well close up. Everything was just blurry because <laughs> he, he was talking to a Jew. Um, if if a far sighted Nazi uh, asked Jesus if he were hiding Jews under his floorboard. I think Jesus would say no. He would lie to the Nazi and send him on his way. I don't think he would say, yeah, come on in, they're hiding under the floorboards, there's about ten of them. I really hate to tell you that, but I, I dare not lie. Some people aren't entitled to the truth because of what they would do if they had it. The Bible commends the midwives in the book of Exodus for lying to the, infant, to the infanticidal Pharaoh, and James commends Rahab in, in James, the epistle of James, Jesus' brother wrote. He commends Rahab for doing what she did and lying to save the life of the Israelite spies, an example that Michael Heiser himself mentions in the blog post that I'm going to link to in the show notes. I think it would be odd for the Word of God to commend such actions if such actions were inherently sinful and things that God himself would refrain from doing if he found that himself in those circumstances as a human. The Hebrew midwives did a good thing. Rahab did a good thing. People who lie to Nazis to throw them off the scent of Jews are doing good things. Lying is good in these circumstances. And God did a good thing when he supernaturally caused the Aramean army to hear armies that weren't there, and when he sent a divine council member to deceive the prophets to get them to lie to Ahab to get him to go so he would die at the hands of the uh, Ramath Gilead army. Because, I mean, you read the Old Testament. King Ahab, oh my gosh, he was, he was just, he was so awful. I'm not even, I'm not going to go into all the stuff he did, but he was a very bad man. I, I can totally understand God's decision to, okay, I want this guy dead. It's, it's time. I, <laughs> just a, not a good person. So, 
so I don't think we should be too bothered. In cases like 2 Kings 7, 1 Kings 22, 1 Samuel chapter 16 verses 1 to 13, or others in which we have God practicing deception. Because in these three cases, and others, which God is using deception to thwart evil, to, pro to perpetuate good. There isn't a single instance in Scripture of God lying in which that lying brings about evil to innocent people. When we have verses like 1 Samuel 15.29 or Titus 1.2, which says that God never lies, I, I think the kind of lying the biblical authors have in mind here is nefarious lying. It's the kind of lying that would produce evil results. So, for example, if God, God would never tell us we're saved by faith alone, as he does in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9, to nine, if in fact we weren't, if we had to work our way to him. If we had to work our way to him, he would tell us that. If, if, um, if there were more ways to heaven than just Jesus, Jesus would not say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No, he wouldn't say that. Um, or God would not tell us to believe in, G in Jesus, to worship Jesus, and then when we get to heaven, say, "Hey, you should, you guys should have become, should have, you guys should have become Mormons." <laughs> hey, you know that Trinity stuff. I was, I was just joking around about that. I, I'm not really three persons. I'm one. And by worshiping Jesus, y'all, y'all have been committing idolatry your whole lives. Um, you really shouldn't. Yeah, my my Holy Spirit really. Yeah, you really, you really should have just disregarded John one there, because uh, the, yeah, guess what? The word's not God. I was just kidding. No, he's not gonna do that. And I found, I, I talked about this. This I talked about this in a Q and A article called Q and A: Several Questions About God, World, Molinism, and Divine Deception. And everything I just said here on on the podcast is what I said there. I, I made the same points. Uh, I quoted from, I, I, I relied on Heiser's work. And even, I found that people still really couldn't get around this. Uh, as I was discussing it with people in the comment section, they really just, you know, Je Jesus, well, God, you know, he can lie. Uh, does that, you know, does that mean that we, that, that, does that mean we can't trust him when he, when he tells us things in the Bible? Does that mean that we, when he, makes promises that maybe he'll break them that no no god that would be lying for evil purposes that would that would be lying in order to hurt us um i think it's i think it's helpful to think of this as being similar to killing killing is most of the time evil. It's evil to kill another human being, to shoot them with a with a gun, or to stab them in the heart, or to suffocate them, or to poison them, or to toss them off a building, or, you know... <laughs> it's evil to do that kind of thing. Most of the time. Not always. Think of a terrorist who is going... You, let's say that you know, you can see him coming from a block away. He's... 
you know, he's got a bomb strapped to him. He's got two guns in his in his arm. He's he's gonna he's going to run in and he in a crowded movie theater. He's gonna shoot the place up and then he's gonna blow himself up afterwards. You know, he's gonna take as many people as he as he can. Um. Now, let's say you are let's say you have a gun on you. You take the gun out. And you shoot the terrorist in the head before he gets anywhere near it. He can't. He can't pull the ripcord on his explosive device. He can't fire at anyone. You 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 strike him down before he ever gets near the place. You would not be charged with murder. You would be hailed as a hero because you did a good thing. You sh you killed a man, but you did it to protect many many other lives. If someone were attacking you and were trying to kill you and you fought back and you killed the the other person, you wouldn't – I mean you might be tried so that people can figure out whether it was murder or not. But if the truth – you know, if it's – say – if it comes out, if the verdict is, yeah, this man killed the other one in self-defense, the judge and jury would be okay with that because you have a right to defend your life. Sometimes killing is okay. Well, sometimes lying is okay. Sometimes lying is good. In fact, I would say that sometimes telling the truth is evil. Not some if you if if you were in Nazi Germany and a Nazi came to your door and said, "Are you hiding Jews?" and you were, and you said, "Yeah, they're right under the floorboards." You would be doing something evil. You would be sending many innocent people to their deaths. You would be morally obligated in that instance to lie to the Nazi. Um, God is not going to lie. Uh, for evil purposes. Just like, you know, just just like killing can be okay in some circumstances, some context, the same goes with lying. You know, I think we can all agree that taking the life of another human being is not always wrong. It's wrong oftentimes, most of the time, even. It's wrong to kill someone in revenge because you hate them, you, you want to steal from them. We this, this kind of killing is called murder. Murder is a specific kind of killing. It is defined as unjustified killing. But, by contrast, there's nothing wrong with a legal system to send capital to to give capital punishment to someone who committed heinous crimes there's nothing wrong with self defense there's nothing wrong with getting rid of a terrorist before he has a chance to strike capital punishment and self defense are justified killing but vigilante justice and abortion are not justified killings so if there can be justified killings, there can be justified lying as well. And I think a lie to protect innocent people is a justified lie. It's wrong to lie in most circumstances you can think of. Most of the time that we lie in our everyday experience, we do so with less than noble motives. We do so to save face, to cover up something wrong that we did, to cover up something wrong that someone else did or to just get our way, but there are exceptions. I, we don't have to worry about God being a habitual liar, in other words. And this is what a lot of people in the comments section of that article seem to be worried about, is that, well, if God would lie to, in one or two instances, then you know how can we believe anything he says? 
No, God is not going to deceive someone unless it is for the purpose of thwarting evil. Now, examples of God deceiving in order to thwart evil, they're few and far between, but they are in Scripture. They are in Scripture. Um, now, this is not this is not to advocate for a purely situationalist ethic. I think some actions are always wrong, no matter what. Absolute morality. Uh, for example, blasphemy. I think blasphemy is wrong in all contexts uh, when it's directed to God. Idolatry is always wrong. You are never justified in worshiping another god or no god at all. You are morally obligated to worship Yahweh. And I have a whole blog post on that called Worship Me or Burn, an oversimplification of an atheist meme. Um, adultery is always wrong. You know, having sex with another woman when you are married. That That's... That's never justifiable. So I'm not arguing for uh, consequentialist ethics or situational ethics, what, but what I'm saying is that there can be exceptions to certain actions which under ordinary cir normal circumstances would be wrong. I don't think there are many of these, uh, I think, but I think lying and killing are a couple of things which depending on the circumstance, highly specialized circumstances, they can be justified. Um, now, I'm aware that there are Christians who uh, hold tenaciously to the view that lying is wrong no matter what the circumstance and, you know, with regard to, like, Rahab uh, lying to the Israelites, God, they would say, well, God blessed her in spite of her sin, not because of it. Well, I don't think that works. Because James, uh, the, way he's talk the way he's talking about her in that passage, he really seems to think that she did quite a commendable thing. I don't think he, th I, don't th I don't think you would ask him, hey, did Rahab do something wrong? You would probably say, no. That was a good thing. She protected the Israelite spies. Uh, but the pro, you know, the problem with holding the view that lying is wrong in all circumstances, no matter what, no exceptions whatsoever. Well, the problem, well, one problem with that is, well, they they appeal to the ninth commandment: "You shall not bear false witness." Well, listen to the way it's worded: "You shall not bear false witness." That's not saying. That's not just saying wrong stuff, like, the sky is green. Or, I had blueberries for lunch when you didn't have blueberries for lunch. It's not, it, it, it's a legal context. It has to do with perjury, basically. It has to, it has to do with not telling the truth in a court of... You know, it's a, it's a legal context. Now, that doesn't mean that God is okay with all sorts of lying outside of a legal context, but... Yeah, anyway, that, that's, a, that's a rabbit trail. Um, the fact is, we have a clear example of divine deception in 2 Kings 7. So, these Christians who, you know, 
say lying is wrong no matter what circumstance, no exceptions whatsoever. They need to reevaluate their view of deception. You know, unless they want to indict God of sin, unless they want to say God did something morally wrong here, I don't think they want to go there. I certainly don't. So unless they unless they want to indict God of sin, they're going to have to reevaluate their view of of the, of deception. They're going to have to allow, and I think rationally it, it makes sense to allow some deception. I mean, who in the world would say that telling the truth to Nazis in order to get Jews sent to their death, you know, if you're hiding Jews, who in the world would say, oh yeah, that's a good thing because you're morally obligated to tell the truth in all circumstances. You're morally and think think of think of think of what else this would entail. This would entail that you it is morally wrong for you to be an undercover police officer. Well, you're deceiving people, aren't you? You're you're making them think you're you're making them think you're something you're not, or you're concealing something you are. And uh, I'm recording this on April Fool's on April Fool's Day. Pretty much every prank ever pulled involves some sort of deception. Is God going to be mad at you for pulling a prank? What about the no look pass in the no look pass in basketball? Is God going to be at, mad at you over that? Is God going to be mad at the Christian quarterback who looks left and throws right? Uh, can a can a Christian really be in the witness protection program? You know, <laughs> do you have to hurt your wife's feelings? Yes, honey, you look like a cow in that dress. I don't think so. I don't think God requires that of us. So... <laughs> No, the these instances in Scripture of God lying is not a problem, and and the author of Numbers and the author of Titus were very likely aware of these passages. People back then were much more acquainted with their Bibles than people are today. We have a very alarming biblical illiteracy rate, even among people who claim to be Christians. People claim to be Christians, but they never pick up their Bibles. Their Bibles sit, they have them, but they sit in their drawers and collect dust. They don't even read their Bible casually, much less get into in-depth study. But people back in the Second Temple period were really, really, really into studying their Bibles. And even people who couldn't read... Um, would attend synagogue. They would hear the scriptures being read. Um, I've heard some. I've heard some New Testament scholars say that it was not uncommon for rabbis to have the entire Torah committed to memory. So the author of the Book of Numbers, the author of Titus. I mean, Numbers. Numbers wasn't written in the Second Temple period, but um, you know, obviously. I mean, uh, the the guy who wrote Second Kings. He was familiar with numbers, at least. I mean, it's part of the Pentateuch. The author of Titus, you know, I'm not going to get into whether that was Paul or not. I think it was Paul, but he, he, he knew about these instances. So what they probably when they when Titus one two says God does not lie, 
it's probably thinking of lying in the ordinary sense, lying in order to to get your way, to to do wrong to someone, to swindle them, like in a scammer situation in which you take their money. He's not going to lie in an underhanded way. This is it. it that's the kind of lying that Satan does, the father of lies, John 8:44. Satan lies in a nefarious way, and he does it habitually. Jesus even says it's his native tongue. He's been doing it for eons since Genesis 3, and according to 2 Corinthians 4:4, 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded uh, the minds of unbelievers so they they cannot receive the gospel, and, you know, he, he Paul calls him the god of this world because Satan was identified as the Roman god Apollyon. Uh, Apollyon was the chief of the Roman pantheon. Rome had taken over the entire world, uh, the world that they knew about, not the entire world, literally, the whole globe, but it took, they took over pretty much all of the, the nations that were covered in the 70 nations. So... He, he was the god of the world, you know, the whole Deuteronomy 32 worldview. He was the, he was the, he was, he's, Satan is Apollyon. He's the leader of the pantheon of the, of the nation that took over all the other nations. That's why Satan, that's why Paul could call him the god of this world. And why Satan said, hey Jesus, I'll give you all the nations of the world if you just bow to me. In Matthew 4. Yeah, that's the Satan, the god of this world, that's the kind of lying he does. He's The kind of lying he does is only for evil purposes. And God, God lies to promote good. And he only does that when he absolutely has to. That's why we don't have very many instances of it in Scripture. That's why you may not have even, you may not even have, have thought of these instances. I mean, you may have glanced over them during your Bible reading, or maybe they're just not talked a lot in, about in sermons. God doesn't do it often because he doesn't have to. But when he lie, when he participates in deception, it will always be to promote good. It will never be... It will never be for sinful or immoral purposes. God is a maximally great being. He is the standard of morality, as the moral argument and the ontological argument show us. God is perfect. He's morally perfect. Um, as Deuteronomy 32.4 says, as Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways of just, a God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I, I want to, again, wish everyone a happy Easter, happy Good Friday, happy, uh, yeah, even though you won't be hearing it on Friday, uh, you'll be hearing it on Saturday, I mean, unless you're a patron, then you can hear it even today, on April Fool's Day. I want to give a shout-out to my patrons. Let me pull it up. Zach Miller. 
Slam are in James Gadomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to become a supporter of the Cerebral Faith Ministry, go to www.patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. God bless you, and I will see you next time. Oh, and keep using the brains that God gave you.